The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. All right, well, we will study Chronicles this hour. Appreciate Frank uh, covering while I was in Chicago last week, and, and he's done Psalms and Proverbs now out of order because of travel, so I appreciate him doing that, but we're back on a track. We'll be doing Chronicles uh, which we normally do after Kings because they go so well together. And uh, a big part of Chronicles is explaining how it does differ from Kings, Samuel and Kings. But we will uh, pick it up now and hopefully remember what we talked about in Samuel and Kings as we start. So we don't often talk about the date and authorship of Old Testament books uh, like we do New Testament books. But uh, Chronicles is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because there's reasonable attestation in Jewish uh, tradition that it was written by Ezra. There's also Jewish tradition about who wrote Kings and others, but uh, Ezra is historically been, uh, or traditionally been, uh, pegged as the author of Chronicles. So most Old Testament books other than the Law of Moses don't always say who wrote them. Uh, prophets, I guess, bear their names. Uh, but in the case of these historical works, we haven't known. But in the case of Chronicles, uh, there is good tradition that Ezra wrote it. In terms of a timing, uh, you know, Ezra was of that generation after the Babylonian exile, uh, after the decree of Cyrus that the Jews could return uh, from Babylon to the Promised Land. Ezra was one of the priests, the preeminent priest, who came back to help teach the law in those days. And Chronicles, unlike Kings, you know, if you remember, Kings ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. And we talked about how that was surprising because everything up to that point had always been God showing mercy with the renewed covenant. And then Elijah and Elisha come on the scene and it's like, oh, okay, there's going to be another covenant. Oh, no, there's not. And then the destruction of Kings. And it ended there. With Chronicles... Uh, the span is going to be much larger. It's going to start way before. The first word of the book is Adam. It goes all the way back to Adam, and it's going to go beyond it. And so Ezra was around during that time. Ezra would have been uh, one who certainly could have uh, written it. This is from the Talmud. It's a quote from the Talmud, which is uh, you know, written rabbinic thoughts about the, the Torah and the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. And there you see uh, Ezra mentioned as the author. Um, here is Gleason Archer is a, is a conservative Old Testament believer scholar he says is the chief architect of the spiritual and moral revival of the second commonwealth the first commonwealth being when Israel was a nation under David and Solomon and the like but then after returning and starting to rebuild the nation they would call that the second commonwealth Ezra was one of the chief architects and spiritual uh, leaders of that and he would have had every incentive, Cleese and Archer says, to produce a historical survey like this. We'll see, as we get into it, that one of the key differences of Chronicles to Kings is its focus on the temple and, and Levites and worship, uh, as opposed to Kings, which was a lot to do with prophets, as we said, but Kings, obviously. This had much of a, uh, a worship, a temple uh, focus on it so it would make sense even as a Levite for Ezra to have been the author. In terms of the date, um, as I mentioned, 
Chronicles starts way before Kings. Kings starts, as you recall, it's got the, the end of David, or even if you take Solomon, excuse me, if you take Samuel, it starts with you know Saul and Samuel and David. You know, that is where Kings and Samuel fits in. Chronicles starts way before that. The first nine chapters, as I referenced this morning, are genealogies, starting with Adam, and they go all the way down to six generations after, I think it's six, after Zerubbabel, which is, Zerubbabel was one of the key leaders along with Ezra that came back as part of that second commonwealth to build Israel back in their, back in their land after Cyrus had allowed them to go back. So uh, as we continue to talk about the date and who might have written it, another thing that people have pointed out that uh, makes sense for Ezra being the author is the last three verses, or last two, I think, of the way they're numbered in Chronicles are the same as the first three verses in Ezra. Uh, the exact same they are linked in that way and again Ezra is believed to be the author of the book that bears his name as well and also because uh, those three verses if we read them uh, let me read them to you they're a, a record of Cyrus's um, a record of Cyrus's uh, decree that the Jews could go back in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah. I ask you to tuck that away too for later, this reference to Jeremiah. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among your people, may Yahweh his God be with him and let him go up. And if you turn just over to Ezra, it's the same thing uh, in the first three verses of Ezra. That decree was in 538, so you would say, hey, whoever wrote this had to have been at least 538 or after. But again, in the, in the genealogies, it actually takes their names of folks that are descendants down. I think, it's, I think it's actually six generations after Jehoiachin, which was one of the last kings, and maybe only four from Zerubbabel. Nevertheless, so likely written around 450 B.C. because you have to allow for those, if you say 20, 25 years for a generation, you get past that to around 450 B.C. or so, which again is um, right around the time that Ezra was leading the spiritual revival and teaching the people in the Second Commonwealth. So again, unknown, but possibly Ezra, likely sometime in the 5th century B.C., maybe 450 B.C., now, the, the location of Chronicles in the canon is interesting. Uh, you know, we know right where it is in, in English. It, it makes sense. Um, it's in the historical books. It takes, you know, a lot of the same, even though it goes all the way back to Adam and you have through the genealogies, you have history previous to what Kings does. It takes a lot of the same material as is in Kings. And then it leads very well, not only just because the verses are repeated, at the end of Chronicles and Ezra, but even just the history, you know, they've been, the end of Chronicles says they can go back and Ezra shows them going back. So the location of Chronicles in the English canon makes a lot of sense. It's chronological, it makes a lot of sense. Hebrew is interesting where they place chron Chronicles canonically. You might be surprised when you learn uh, where it is. We've already talked about how the Torah, it's Tanakh, remember the Hebrew scriptures are called Tanakh, Torah, Nevaim, which is prophets, Ketubim, which is writings. 
So we already talked about how the Torah is the first five and then the prophets. And we're like, oh, did you know Joshua is a prophet? And Judges, those are former prophets. Uh, the prophets as a whole take from the vantage point of the destruction of Jerusalem. The former prophets look back and say, here's what happened. Here's why it happened. Here's the story of it. Again, all that covenant renewal up until Kings. And the latter prophets look forward and say, there will be one more covenant. There will be mercy one more time and it will be eternal and it will be this new covenant. And they describe it. They describe the Messiah who's going to be the one that brings it. They describe when it's going to happen, specifically when it's going to happen. So that's that's the prophets. But then they had the K, Tanakh, Ketuvim, the writings. And Chronicles is in the writings. It's not in, you know, you might say, well, is it is it in the prophets like kings? Well, no, because it would kind of span that. Remember, you know, the former prophets, they were from the destruction of Jerusalem looking back. Well, Chronicles goes beyond that. And it's not just the future. It is very future-oriented. We're going to talk about that. But it tells a lot of history. So it doesn't make sense to go in the prophets. It goes in the writings. And uh, two things to say about that before I show it here in just a second. One is the writings as a whole, if you think about, like, you know, tell me about these major divisions in the Hebrew canon. Well, the Torah, if you had to say something about it, it's like foundational. It's the foundation of everything. Uh, the prophets, again, you know, they're they're looking at the story, God's, you know, story of Israel and how he's going to, whether he's going to be faithful to them. Is he going to have mercy? Why didn't he have mercy? What's going to happen in the future? The, the writings are really about, okay, we have the prophets. We know God is going to have mercy another time. He's going to create a new covenant. He's going to love us eternally. He's going to give us a new heart so that we never fail again. The writings are those scriptures that the Hebrews look to in the interim like okay i i hear the promises i see it but it's not happening like when and the psalms come and uh esther comes we'll talk about it two weeks from now like i hear that you're with me god but i don't see the miracles well esther shows that god is working providentially behind the scenes <laughs> daniel explains hey the reason why you haven't seen anything is because it's not just going to be 70, it's going to be 77. It's going to be a while. And so the, the writings are what the, the, the Jews, the Hebrew uh, believers would hold to. And, and how do I live during this time? You know, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And Chronicles is going to be that way as well. Chronicles is really going to serve as a summary of entire history of Israel up to that point and show what it means when they were faithful to God, he always showed up. That's going to be an important thing. When they were faithful to God, God always uh, you know, blessed them and cared for them. And so Chronicles actually is the last book in their scripture. It is the one that takes in view everything before it, sums it up, and looks forward to the future and says, here's our history. Here's the, as I prayed earlier this morning, here's a view of our history, which Forget about the failures for a little bit. Here's the, the good parts about it. Here's how we worship the Lord. If we're faithful to him, he will come through. Hang in there. Don't give up. It will come. And Chronicles takes all that in and is the last book. And so for us in English, while it makes sense where it's at, sometimes we might say, I mean, it's just kind of a repeat of Kings, right? You know, what's the point of it? In fact, the Greek title for it is... Uh, what is it? It was the things left out is the Greek title you know, before Chronicles. So, it, you know, just kind of like, hey, it's just, you know, it's just 
it's like the you know the other it's just a, re, a repeat of things and maybe a few things left out but for that's that's really a, a, a poor viewing of it because it does have its own it's not just a repeat of kings it's not just extra uh, it has a purpose it's different than the purpose of kings king's purpose was specifically to show that god was not going to have mercy anymore that his mercy had ended the, the latter prophets pick up that story and say but here's the future that's going to happen in the latter days chronicles has a totally different purpose and it looks at the history of israel for a different reason and so we'll see it tells the story of israel differently as a result we'll get to that in just a second that's its location in the hebrew canon so this quote uh, is really just explaining what i just did it's easy to sort of overlook or underestimate it's needless repetition it's got this simplistic view of, of israel's history like none of the bad stuff's in there um you know these are these are folks that are just calling out it, it's easy uh, von rad is, is a liberal scholar he just talks about how it's not as good of a work as as kings which is the deuteronomistic work um, but this paul house is a great book on chronicles and, and or has a great section on Chronicles and Old Testament theology. But he says, no, that's not the case. This is an excellent book that draws together, that concludes the canon, draws together everything in a very creative, historically accurate manner. And it's very important for understanding the whole message of Old Testament because of its place in the canon. It is a summary of everything that had proceeded to that point. If you think about the revelation to the Jews, uh, this was one of the last things. This was one of the last books, even though, again, we might not think of it that way because it's stuck up in the historical books. It's one of the last things. It goes six generations from Jehoiachin, four generations from Zerubbabel. It takes them all the way, and it's written around the time of Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, and it's summarizing everything that preceded. It's not like Kings, which really viewed it as an end point. You know, it was. I think I I told the joke that if you were watching Kings in the movie theater, you you'd stick around because you're like, there's no way that's how the movie ends. Like, the movie staff would have, you know, that's how it viewed it. Chronicles is not that way at all. Chronicles is very forward looking. It summarizes everything, and it's very hopeful for the future. It goes all the way back to Genesis. The first word is Adam. It's going to summarize the history of Israel from a different perspective. Okay, so let's talk about that perspective that different perspective let me tell you four things about the different perspective of chronicles compared to samuel kings one i've already referred to we can go through quickly is the time period again samuel kings is from basically from samuel to the destruction of <coughs> jerusalem by babylon that's not true of chronicles it goes back from adam all the way to the end of history as they knew it at the time uh, Cyrus's decree and a few generations after. So that's one difference. But let me let me mention three more. Again, Chronicles is very positive and hopeful. I asked you to tuck away earlier his reference to Jeremiah. Uh, you, I think I have this in the next slide. But uh, King spends, I think it's twenty-five verses detailing the destruction of Jerusalem because that's the point. It's like that is the surprising end. Chronicles spends two and a half verses on it. And it immediately goes to talk about what Jeremiah said and how Jehoiachin is released from prison and how there's this future and Cyrus's decree. And so it's very hopeful. It's showing that despite the fact that, yes, we were destroyed, we're past that now. We're past that. What we have now are the promises of God to create a new covenant. That's what Jeremiah said. We've been sent back. Let's be faithful because that's the last and next thing to come. So it's a very positive and hopeful book 
unlike Samuel Kings, which was very negative or at least uncertain. You had to read it with the prophets for it to be anything other than negative or uncertain. Very little ink spent on negative things. Again, it's a different view. That's why people think it's, uh, people say that it's a simplistic history. You know, they, uh, they say, hey, it's not, a, it's not a, an accurate history. It's not that. It's, it's like the Gospels, right? The Gospels present stories of Jesus. I mean, John himself says there's no way we can include everything. There's no way. So they're picking things based on their purpose. And Matthew's writing to present Jesus as king. Mark is servant. Luke is that he's human. Jesus that he's divine. And they're picking stories to, for that purpose. It's not that they're being deceitful. They have a purpose in writing. Chronicles is the same way. So it's not that it's inaccurate, but the purpose of the chronicler is to give hope, is to tell you, here's all our history, here's where we're at, summarize it all, and let's be faithful as we wait for the last thing to come. Listen, though, as an example of this, the first Chronicles 20, I already mentioned the little ink that's spent on the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to this story, which you'll recognize immediately. It's just three verses long. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Y'all know what story this is, right? That Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. You guys still know what this story is. Joab struck Rabbah and overthrew it. David took the crown of their king from his head, bound it to weigh a talent of gold. There was precious stones in it. He brought out the people. He destroyed the people. This is what he did to the cities of Ammon, and then they returned to Jerusalem. Is that what you expected? What did you expect? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Yeah, where's Bathsheba? I thought when when Dave, when Joab was doing that, that's when David took Bathsheba, killed Uriah. Like nothing, nothing about that anywhere here. It's not again. The chronicler is not deceiving anyone, but that's not his purpose. His purpose is not to to remind us that David failed, which he did, and that's why there had to be another covenant. That's not his purpose, though. His purpose is to say. Hey, here's when we did what was good, God blessed us, and he's made us these promises through Jeremiah. We, what we need to do is be faithful to him. It will come, and we will be forgiven by God, and we will be blessed. Not only, uh, oh, in fact, there's no Amnon. Remember Amnon who, who raped his, his half-brother's sister? That's not there. Absalom, the story of Absalom, the story of David on the run, not there. Adonijah, remember Adonijah usurped Solomon at first, not there. The northern kingdom, not mentioned, none of its kings are chronicled. So uh, very little ink spent on negative things, and extra ink is spent on positive things. Manasseh, if you read about Manasseh in Kings, he's awful. He's the worst southern king. He's sacrificing his own sons in Jerusalem, killing his own sons, uh, sacrificing them to idols. It's because of Manasseh that this judgment comes. Well, this is amazing. I remember reading this for the first time ever in college in 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh repents. It's, it's, and God actually delays judgment because of his repentance. It's astounding. Uh, 
Verse 11 of chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 33, 11. Yahweh brought commanders of the army, the king of Assyria against them. They captured Manasseh with hooks and they took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Manasseh had done some terrible things. And when Manasseh prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. You would have had no clue of that from kings. And it just talks about all the things he did. He removed foreign gods from that point. He set up the altar of Yahweh. Amazing. Great national Passover of Josiah. Chapters spent talking about this amazing revival in the days of Josiah that included not just Judah, but people from the northern kingdom came and participated. People that had fled because the northern kingdom had, was destroyed at that time and came down and participated in this great national Passover. There's a story of Zerah, the Ethiopian, not in Kings Anywhere. He comes against Asa with a million people. A million people. And Asa calls out to God and defeats them. So, again, the chronicler, very hopeful, looking at Israel's history, not naive, not deceitful, but the point of the chronicler is to say, yes, Kings is true, but look, there. when we were faithful, God was faithful to us. God has promised through Jeremiah to, to bring a new covenant to us. Let's get to work. Let's obey the Lord. Let's look at our history. Look at the good parts of it when we worship God, and let's do that. Even in contexts which are virtually the same, where I just read, for instance, words that you were like, yeah, I remember that story from Kings, and it's like, oh, wow, that's different. Listen to, do you remember the, um, I remember when I used to go to dentist offices when I was a kid, and they would have the highlights magazines, do you remember that? And one of the things they had was like, find the differences between two pictures. This is an audible version of highlights. I'm gonna read two passages, one from Samuel and one from Chronicles, and just try to listen Try to hear the difference between the two, and it will give you another feel for the difference, the new perspective that the author of Chronicles has compared to Samuel Kings. This is from Samuel. I'll try to emphasize to make it easier. I will be a father to him. This is the Davidic covenant. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom will endure for me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now listen to the same thing in Chronicles. <clears throat> I will be his father. He will be my son. I will not take my loving kindness from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house, in my kingdom, forever. And his throne will be established forever. You can hear some differences between those two, right? Same event, different perspective. One, no no stake. Remember, remember when we talked about the different uh, covenants, there was always that concern. It was when the giving of the covenant, but I don't think you can obey me. I'm a holy God. Or, you know, if your sons in the Davidic covenant, if your sons don't obey me, here's what's going to happen. That's not at all in Chronicles. He doesn't talk about what's going to happen. He doesn't say when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. That's completely left out. 
Or he said, as I took it away from Saul. Did you notice how he said it in Chronicles? As I took it from him who was before you, like it's him who won't even be named, the artist formerly known as Saul. <laughs> and he says, I'll settle him in my house, in my kingdom, not yours. So it's just a different, a different perspective. And that's what makes Chronicles have a unique contribution and not just be the things remaining or whatever. Okay, third perspective. There's four. four uh, um, the direction. Again, Kings was part, it was the end. It was part of the former prophets. It was the end of the former prophets. It was right before the destruction of Judah and looked back on that and explained how God did not renew covenant through Elijah and Elisha. It's looking back. Well, Chronicles is not looking back. It does summarize Israel's history, all of it, really quickly, too. I mean, it gets from Adam to the kingship in nine chapters, but it, it does. It covers all of Israel's history. It does look back, but it looks forward to the work of the post-exilic community because that's the encouragement. It's for that community. Ezra was a part of that community. He's writing to them. I don't know where... Okay, it's it's next. I want to make sure I get... There's something I'm wanting to say uh, that I think is helpful to share the difference, but I have it at the end. So it, it's part of encouraging the post-exilic community who did not have glory when they came back. You remember they built the temple and they got really sad because it wasn't the same and the people who remembered realized it wasn't the same and this is an encouraging book saying keep looking forward don't give up here's how god showed up when we were honoring him in the past it doesn't it looks back only in the sense of trying to give ammunition to people to be encouraged again it's, it's especially true when you compare the last chapters again i mentioned second kings 25 is 21 verses Detailing 22 verses detailing the destruction of Jerusalem. And then five verses that talks about the rebellion against Gedaliah. Gedaliah was the governor that got put in charge by Babylon. And they kill him. You know? He comes and says, hey, let's calm down. Let's just listen to what they say. God's going to be with us. They murder him. It's like, no, forget it. We're going to Egypt. We're not doing what God says. And then it ends with the death of Israel's king in Babylon. Second Chronicles spends about six verses talking about how much God loved them and sent the prophets trying to turn them. Spends three verses, four, two and a half verses, um, talking about the destruction, because it's real, but very short. Even in that, mentions Persia, who was the one that would release them. And then starts talking about the prophets and flows into the return of the, the people from Cyrus. Very different ending. So again, it shows you this author is looking forward to what they're in now, not looking back and, and bemoaning. Kings is much more like Lamentations. Chronicles is much more like Haggai. Like, hey, let's get up and work. Let's obey the Lord. He'll, he'll honor us and we can have the glory that we used to have. Again, the most notable characters... Uh, missing in Chronicles. I've already mentioned Saul's not really there, the northern kingdoms, but who were the most notable characters in Kings? Remember we said it was odd that they would be. Who were they? Prophets. Which ones particularly? Elijah. Elijah and Elisha, a quarter of the book. A third of the book if you take out the stories of Solomon at the beginning. A quarter of the book. They're not in Chronicles at all. And again, the reason for that, I believe, is the purpose in Kings is to make a point that God's not renewing their covenant. That purpose is not needed in Chronicles. He's rather highlighting that God 
will make a future covenant. So let's honor, let's obey him, and let's follow him. Lastly, what not only the direction, not that it, not only that it's hopeful instead of bemoaning, not only that uh, the time period being greater, not only that it's looking forward instead of back, the purpose is for encouragement versus conviction for Samuel Kings. The purpose of Chronicles is to encourage the post-exilic community to prepare themselves by faith to inherit the promises God has made to them through Moses and the prophets, especially Jeremiah. This is what I wanted to say earlier. I think it is a good explanation of the difference. The reader of Samuel Kings should bring forth tears. The reader of Chronicles should bring forth sweat. She called them to work, to honor God, to follow him because the best is yet to come. The reader of Kings ought to be sad because it's not what they expected. Samuel Kings, you had to look elsewhere. You had to look prophets to move forward. Here, Chronicles demonstrates that now is the time to act. If they will do as the faithful before them have done, God will restore the kingdom to them. <clears throat> oh, here it is. Okay. All right, purpose statement. What is the purpose? I just mentioned it's a different purpose. We just talked about the purpose. The exile has ended. Chronicles is beyond that. God has begun to fulfill the good words of the prophets. Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to restore you. Ezekiel, you're going to have a temple in the land. You're going to have a, a, a temple that's unlike any before it. And this is beginning. They're seeing it. They're coming back. The exile's ended. God started to fulfill the good words. Israel needs to come together as a nation and prepare for a new covenant and the restoration of their kingdom by establishing proper worship and pursuing faithful obedience with all their heart. That's the purpose Chronicles. Now, that purpose statement, like we've done before, comes from the themes of Chronicles. It takes the main major themes and tries to make a purpose statement out of those themes. I got a lot of these themes from a guy named David Howard. It's a book, Introduction to Old Testament Historical Books. Really good book on Chronicles, on introducing Chronicles. I'll give you the full details at the end when I refer to a couple of books that are helpful in Chronicles. But here are some major themes. One is the unity of all Israel. If you go back to the purpose statement, if you remember, Israel should come together as a nation. It's a big part of Chronicles. And the unity of all Israel is a major theme. All Israel, differences again in the way that they describe the history. Remember in Kings, it takes a long time for David to come back and be king after Saul's death. First, it's just Judah. The rest of the kingdom has anointed the man of shame. Remember, Isposheth. And then he finally has to get Amasa, the general who is accused of wrongdoing by Isposheth regarding a woman to come over and say, okay, well, now I'm going to come and bring the kingdom. Like there's all this intrigue before David is accepted by all the tribes. So the chronicler talks about all Israel coming together to anoint David at Hebron. A lot of emphasis on each of the tribes supporting David together. Again, in Samuel, it took a while. To get there. I mentioned the Passover of Josiah and northern residents coming and celebrating in that national Passover. Same thing for Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah sent messengers. You wouldn't have known this for kings. He sent messengers throughout the, the, the land and brought people down to worship God and to participate in their festivals. These are themes in Chronicles. That's all these verses talk about Judah reaching north um, the actual, this is a quote, I forget from who, we'll see at the end. The term all Israel is 105 times 
throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. 40% of those, that's what? 40, 50 times, 40, 50 of those 100 um, occur in First and Second Chronicles, 40 times. It shows the prominence of this idea. An even more revealing statistic comes from noticing that in only six cases does the chronicler use the phrase from the source. And we you say the source, cl clearly Ezra didn't live in the time of David. I mean, he's having to get that information from somewhere. There were historical annals that they used. And so he's taking a source the same way that the writer of Kings would have. Nobody lived that whole span. He's taking that source, and it seems changing it at times to use the word all Israel. Twelve cases it says the phrase all Israel is used by the chronicler. And instead of Israel or all the tribes of Israel, which that's changed to all Israel. So it's an important theme for the chronicler that they think of themselves as one nation together. Fourteen of the references to all Israel come after the death of Solomon, when really Israel wasn't a unified entity. Five come after the northern kingdom's not even there anymore. This is from David Howard, from that really great uh, introduction to Chronicles in this book. It's not just accidental. This is clearly a theme of the chronicler. And that is a vision that the prophets will talk about, is the restoration of the northern tribes of all Israel together. And you'll remember the, the Ezekiel vision of the sticks, you know, that he, he uh, of, of Judah and Israel coming together. All Israel is one theme. Uh, Judah and Levi, again, are prominent in terms of uh, tribes that are called out. Not even post-exilic, when those were the ones that uh, were the preeminent tribes that participated in the return. But even in the stories leading up to a focus on Judah and Levi, especially in the genealogy, which again, I'm not going to take us through. That would be very difficult to explain in a way that wouldn't bore you uh, to tears, but especially in the genealogy is Judah and Levi mentioned, and that will be a connection to the next two major themes, which is the Davidic kingship and then the temple. Uh, the Davidic kingship, um, you know, you don't realize the, the large number of chapters in Samuel Kings that talk about David fleeing are replaced with a large number of chapters in Chronicles that are about David making preparation for the temple. You wouldn't have realized that. You know, David was the one, you know from Samuel Kings, David was the one who wanted to build the temple. And at first, Nathan's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then God says to him, no, 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 not David. He comes back and says, not going to be you. It's going to be Solomon. And then David eventually gets old. Solomon comes. Solomon builds and dedicates the temple. Well, in Chronicles, that's all still true. But there are multitudes of chapters where David says, okay, Okay, I understand I'm not going to be the one to build it, but Solomon's young. I'm going to design it. I'm going to design all the, uh, the processes around it, when people are going to sing and who are going to sing and how we're going to get all the equipment for it, how we're going to get the materials. And David lays out all these plans for it. The temple, David's relationship to the temple is, is very much emphasized in this. He's the one that sets up the worship system, that prepares for the temple. And so, like the chronicler, Israel shouldn't focus on past failures. There's a lot to say about David and his running from Absalom and his failing with Bathsheba, but that's not what he wants them to focus on. He wants them to rather focus on what David did, even when he wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a man of blood. 
David still did what he could to prepare for worship, to prepare for the temple. And that's what Israel should do in the post-exilic. Don't focus on those past failures. Let's look forward. And again, the temple and worship may be the key theme of all of these. Um, it's definitely, it, you know, again, I'll reference the book by Dorsey that I reference a lot. It, it talks about the structure of Chronicles. I'm not going to share it here, but this, the temple is the centerpiece of several units uh, within in David's participation. We already know about Solomon's participation. And then stories from every good king about what they did to repair the temple. And again, you might ask, man, that's a significant focus. Why is it? But again, put yourself in the Kathleen was talking about putting herself in the people's shoes as she reads and you know, really trying to make sure she thinks about, uh, well, put yourself in those shoes. Again, you're the post-exilic community. Here's this temple. It doesn't look anything like it. The Shekinah glory is not there. The, the, the temple isn't the masterpiece that Solomon had made. Well, what did every good king do? You know, Because again, the, the temple was stripped in those days too. Rehoboam took the gold from it and replaced it with bronze. Well, what did the good kings do? They repaired the altar. They rebuilt the temple. They built the upper gate. They do extensive repairs. They would celebrate in it. I'm going to read for you this speech in 2 Chronicles 13 from Abijah the prophet. As for us, Yahweh is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the sons of Aaron are ministering to Yahweh as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. And every morning and every evening they burn to Yahweh burnt offerings and fragrant incense, and the showbread is set on the clean table, and the lampstand, the golden lampstand with his lamps, is ready to light every evening, because we keep the charge of Yahweh our God, but you have forsaken him. Now behold, he's talking that the southern kingdom, they, they do these, they keep these. Now behold, God is with us at our head, his priest with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you, O sons of Israel, the northern kingdom. Do not fight against Yahweh, your God, or your fathers. You will not succeed. So Abijah's speech about the faithfulness. God's going to protect them because they are keeping the temple service. And again, that, that makes sense for the chronicler's purpose. That's what he's calling them to do. Keep the temple service. Restore the temple. Honor God. Worship him. And God will fight for you. God will do what he has said he will do. And the second, probably most important theme behind worship is reward and punishment. Again, that's what I've called out that... There's, the author is trying to share with them, when we've obeyed God, he has always rewarded us. It was, it was for our sins. I don't want to focus on that, but it was our sins that God justly dealt with us. But look, if we seek him, he'll find us. He'll let you find him, I should say. I can, you know, 2 Chronicles 7.14, you guys know that, that verse that's commonly used in parlance. You know, if my people who are called by my name will... That, that's, that's what he's saying. Like, hey, let's return to the Lord. He will... He will reward us. He will do what he has said. Now's the time. And lastly, the heart. Again, you might think of a book about with nine chapters of genealogies with a, a record of historical events. You might think, well, that's not going to be a book about the heart. It's a book about the heart. With a perfect heart or with all the heart is 21 times, only three of which are found in Kings. Again, the author is calling them to truly come to the Lord, not in pretense, but with all their heart. Faithfully honor God, who will reward us. Even in Hezekiah's reign, uh, you have it 11 times that how Hezekiah loved God with all his heart. You don't have any of those in 2 Kings. So it's really important to the chronicler that they, with all their heart, do what he's calling them to. So let's go back to this purpose statement. Israel should come together as a nation 
prepare for a new covenant and the restoration of their kingdom by establishing proper worship and faithfully pursuing obedience with all their heart. So you can hear the themes in that, right? All Israel, the Davidic kingship, the temple and worship, reward and punishment with their heart, and then the references to Jeremiah, especially at the end of Second Chronicles. They're getting ready for this new covenant that God's promised. A couple more slides, almost done. Uh, there are some really good resources on Chronicles. It's not always the case. Sometimes there aren't good books on books of the Bible. There's some really good resources. I've already mentioned David Howard. If you just want to, you know, read about a high level, it's you know what, 36 chapters in Second Chronicles. I don't remember how many in First. 29. I can't do quick math. That's 65 maybe. If I'm doing that right, it's a lot. It's a big book, you know. Uh, and it was one book. It was it was separated when. Uh, it couldn't fit on a scroll when vowels were added in the, with the LXX, with the Greek translation. It's a big book. If you're wanting kind of an overview, a good overview, this is really good. David Howard is very good on that. I've mentioned to you this book many times before in Chronicles, like many other books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, this book is really good on the structure and helping the structure, understand the structure to be able to understand the themes. And you see the temple, you see the temple at the centerpiece of all these different uh, units of the book and you realize okay that's important to the author and lastly Paul House which is the book that is a part of uh, you know Frank recommending as we do this very good on how Chronicles fits in the Hebrew scriptures and the, and the reason why that's important for understanding its purpose we have one more slide um, and that is an interpretive issue um, there are multiple interpretive issues with Chronicles. We're only going to cover one. Anytime you have, like the Gospels, right, that have four different perspectives of one uh, event or one, one life in Christ, you know, there's there can be just differences. You're like, hey, why is there a difference here? Help me understand. You know, so the fact that Chronicles covers so much of other history, there's a, there's actually a fair number of things to discuss here. But I'm going to focus on just one. Uh, that like many of the interpretive issues I bring up, I don't have an answer to, sorry, uh, but at least to talk about it and, uh, and share what possible answers are and just to make you aware. So Jesus, in speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, uh, says this to them, among many other things, that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth. On, that, on those generations he's talking about, the guilt of these murders all this righteous blood that's been shed is going to fall on you from the blood of righteous abel it goes way back to genesis first four chapters from the blood of righteous abel all the way to the blood of zechariah the son of berechiah whom he murdered between the temple and the altar so you everything in between all this murders of the righteous people all the guilt of people shedding blood of innocent righteous people all the way back to Abel, all the way to Zechariah, is going to fall on you. That's some serious judgment. Who, why did Jesus pick Abel to Zechariah? He didn't pick it from A to Z. Uh, that would be that could make sense to us, but Z was not the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and Z or is is not the last what is equivalent to Z is not the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's not why he picked it. One reason he might have picked it is because, as I mentioned, Second Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. And at the very end, or towards the very end, I already mentioned there's, I think, 36 chapters in Second Chronicles, so towards the very end, in chapter 24, 
There is the story of Zechariah, priest, or priest's son, uh, in the temple. So if you remember, Jehoiada was the priest that hid the king, the baby king, the young king, when I think it was Adaliah or Jezebel, my history is failing me here, killed all the other sons, and she whisked away one and kept him hidden until he grew of age. I don't mean really old, I think he was like eight. Jehoiada was faithful to him. You know, this king becomes like, becomes king at like eight years old. So Jehoiada is there helping him, making sure he's just faithful. And then that guy turns around and, and becomes evil and kills him. And Jehoiada's son is like, now standing up in the temple like, that was wrong. And you're going to be judged for your unfaithfulness to my father. And he says, why do you transgress the commandments of Yahweh and not prosper? It's because you've forsaken Yahweh, so he has forsaken you. This is the son of Jehoiada, Zechariah. And they put him to death in the court of the house of Yahweh. So it's possible that while he's not going A to Z, Jesus is saying from the beginning of Genesis to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures in Second Chronicles with the murder of Zechariah, every murder in between of righteous bloodshed is going to fall on you. Well, do you see the problem with that? There's a pretty significant problem with that. Do you see it? It may not be obvious, but he said, on you will fall the, the blood of, from righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Yeah, this is not the son of Berechiah. This is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Now, Jehoiada was 130 years old here. Uh, so it's possible that... Uh, Zechariah was the grandson of Jehoiada. There's not a separate word in Hebrew. Uh, I'll give you uh, an example of that that I wrote down. There's lots of examples, but just to show you, 2 Chronicles 24, 15. Now, no, that's not the right one. That's this story. Nineteen twenty-four. First Chronicles. Not following my notes. Sorry. No, not nineteen twenty-four. Let me find where I'm in my notes. Okay, it's not working. So, Second Samuel nineteen twenty-four. Second Samuel nineteen twenty-four says, "Then Mephibosheth, whose dad was Mephibosheth? Who, who was Mephibosheth's dad? You remember? Jonathan. Jonathan. That's right, Jonathan." Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. In my margin, it says grandson. You know, it says, oh, that means, but it's, it's Bane, you know, the Hebrew word for son. So it's possible that Zechariah is the grandson of Jehoiada and that they call out Jehoiada because he's such a key figure in it. Maybe. But it gets even more interesting because if you read the prophet Zechariah, Right? The word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah. So his dad is named Berechiah. This is a totally different one. So Zechariah, the previous one we talked about was during the time of the kings, um, you know, towards the end, but still during the time of the kings. This Zechariah is after they've been in exile. He's a prophet, not a priest, speaking to the people, encouraging them, rebuild the temple. You know, don't honor God, He's, you know, rebuild the temple, get up, let's work, similar to Chronicles. There's no, um, 
There's no mention of Zechariah the prophet being killed. Now, clearly there are things not written in the Old Testament that happened, right? Uh, an example being Paul in 2 Timothy 3.8 mentions Jonas and Jambres who were a part of Egypt, not mentioned by name in Exodus, but mentioned in oral tradition of Jewish tradition. And, and Paul picks up on that and calls them out by name. And so it's possible that Zechariah was killed. There is an apocryphal work. You know what the apocrypha is. Y'all heard of the apocrypha. There's an apocryphal work called The Lives of the Prophets. It says that Zechariah lived to an old age and died peacefully. And we don't know who wrote that or if it's any good. I mean, but there's a targum. Targum was like a translation uh, they would they would record generally spoken but over time recorded of rabbis speaking about you know translating the Hebrew scriptures into you know a language that would be understood by the people after they had lost the Hebrew language after their exile and they would translate them speak them and exposit them they would add their comments as well similar to what we do there's a, a targum called targum lamentations that says See, O Yahweh, and observe from heaven against whom you have turned. Thus is it right for the daughters of Israel to eat the fruit of their wombs due to starvation, the lovely boys wrapped in fine linen. The attribute of justice replied and said, Is it right to kill priest and prophet in the temple of Yahweh as when you killed Zechariah, son of Edo, in the temple of Yahweh on the day of atonement because he admonished you not to do evil? So two things are there. One, there's this at least tradition that Zechariah the prophet was killed in the temple. It also calls him the son of Edo, which is also interesting as well. Because remember, he was the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. He was the grandson of Edo. Another example of using son when they mean grandson. But there's at least some uh, you know, record, oral tradition, of Zechariah being killed in the temple. So it's possible Jesus is talking about Zechariah the prophet. And while he's not the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, it was one of the last events, right? Zechariah and Malachi were the very last prophets before the 400 silent years, before John the Baptist came on the scene. So it would make sense to say from Abel to the death of Zechariah the prophet, whose dad was Berechiah, as Jesus says. I don't know which one's right. I mean, I don't know. But I will say, um, and I've given this example a lot of times before, you know, there was a time in history where people said there is absolutely no possible way that Daniel and the lion's den and that story with the writing on the wall is historically accurate. There's no way it could be accurate because we have many lists, several, I should say, several lists of Babylonian kings, and there is not a king named Belteshazzar. Never had a king named that. We have them to the very end, to well, Persia. Uh, destroyed them, and we see all the kings. We see uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We see them. There's no Belteshazzar. So that's a made-up story by somebody who wrote Daniel many years later and clearly didn't know the true history of Babylon. And that was it. Was very hard to argue against that. But then they finally found another archaeological find that showed that Nabonidus, who was a king in that list, didn't really like being the king. I mean, he preferred to go on adventures and, and do excursions and go off and he would leave in his charge who Belteshazzar who wasn't the king but that's who he would leave in charge and so do you remember in the story when he's like I don't know what that writing says and he's like knocking in his knees and 
The queen comes in and says, hey, you ought to call Daniel. He can figure this out. They call in Daniel. He says, Daniel, if you can read the writing, I'll make you third, third right? Why did he make him third? Well, he can't make him second. He's second, right? So, you know, you, you finally, oh, okay, well, the Bible is true. Okay, well, all these years of, uh, you know, us taking licks for the story of Daniel and the lion's den, that's not true anymore. So in this case, I don't think we're even that off. Like, I mean, here's two good possibilities. I just don't know which one it is. In fact, there's four possibilities. Uh, John the Baptist's father, there's tradition that he was killed in the temple. So is Jesus talking about that, Zechariah? His dad, apparently, this is from the Gospel of James. I just mentioned apocryphal works. Uh, we were talking about this last night. There are, there are several what are called proto-gospels or proto-evangelicals, which are like, what did Jesus do when he was a kid? Because like we all want to know that, right? And so these apocryphal works have spun up that show him doing all kinds of things, like you know, healing other friends' fishing poles and things, you know, and just all kinds of crazy stuff, which are not accurate probably at all. And I can, this is not the time to talk about why I think that, although we talked about it last night. But there's one called the Gospel of James. And in that gospel, it talks about how Zechariah was murdered in the temple. And then there's some other church tradition that holds that his father was named Barak, which is close to Barakiah. So that's probably not what Jesus was talking about, but I don't know. It's at least another third option. And then Josephus, who came after Jesus, he talks about the killing of a Zechariah, the son of Baruch, in the temple. It would have been future to Jesus talking, not likely that that's what Jesus is talking about. I'm just saying, I don't know the answer. It's probably one of the first two. I think historically I've always felt like it was the first one. Um, there's vengeance for blood in all those contexts. Jesus is talking about vengeance for blood in his context. But I don't know. I didn't know before this year about that Targum of Jonathan. I'd never heard that before I spent a little time more researching this year. That makes it seem a little bit more possible that Jesus is talking about the prophet. I don't know. But I don't think we need to worry. It's one of them. And we have uh, good evidence that hopefully in the future we'll know more to understand. But that's an example of an issue that uh, is hard to reconcile, but will be reconciled more clearly in the future. And it's already within range that we don't need to worry too much. There are others, as I mentioned, again, there's a lot of, hey, in Samuel it says there's this many, and in Chronicles it says there's this many, and you need to you know, figure out those distinctions. But we won't get into those details. This is one class on, what did I say, 65 chapters. We have to stay high level. Next week, we'll talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, and in the same way that Samuel is really one book, even though we have first Samuel, in the same way the Kings is really one book, even though we have first Kings, in the same way that Chronicles is one book, even though we have first and Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book also. So we'll cover it in one sitting, even though that means we have to read more during the week. <laughs> we will cover it in one sitting. So we'll pray, and then we will be dismissed. God, I thank you for a history of Israel that is very helpful, and for uh, a perspective that we can forget about the past. I know uh, if I think about my life, there are a lot of things that I could think about that were not good and uh, that I'm not proud of or uh, that I wonder about. And uh, they're real. They exist. And um, But the reality is you have given great and precious promises in the gospel that we can stand on and we can trust. And while we will not forget about those and we'll remember them as uh, the backdrop of your grace to us, we can look forward. We can have a hopeful perspective 
given your promises that we'd be heirs of Christ that's amazing heirs of God co-heirs with Christ Father, we have great and precious promises. We will inherit the world. And so we can look forward. We can remain hopeful. We can not just have tears, uh, but we can look forward and, and have sweat. We can, we can look at the examples of those who faithfully worshiped you and that you showed up and rewarded. Uh, you honored and you uh, didn't just say, well, I see you but I also know that you've done a lot of bad things in the past. That's not the perspective that Chronicles gives. It's the ability to look back and celebrate the good things and to look forward and recognize that your promises will come true and that you'll be faithful to those who trust you. So Lord, help us to do that. Uh, God, we ask that you would bless even Israel. And we know that you still have a great love for that nation we know that they do not trust you now they have not followed the advice and the counsel of the chronicler or Haggai or Zechariah even in the days of Jesus they had the blood of righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah on their account because they did not take heed to that and haven't still but we know the time is drawing near that we are closer than we've ever been to the restoration of all things and to the repentance of Israel as they see that your son Jesus is their Messiah and is the propitiation not just for us Gentiles but for them as well. So God, we grant that you would give. We ask that you would grant them eyes to see, and that you would help us to be faithful, not prideful, uh, faithful and humble uh, as we.